Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Well, today, Karen and I are really delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Craig Malkin to the podcast. Craig is a lecturer in psychology for Harvard Medical School, and he's in private practice as a licensed psychologist. He has over two decades of experience in helping couples, individuals, and families. He's the author of the excellent book, Rethinking Narcissism. His research has been published in peer-reviewed journals, And he has a blog on psychologytoday.com called Romance Redux. And he's also a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. Dr. Malkin's advice and insights are regularly featured in major magazines and newspapers, as well as in TV and radio shows. Craig also has a popular YouTube channel specifically dealing with narcissism. And he was a contributing author to the 2017 New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. So thank you so much for joining us, Craig. Thanks for having me. I would also like to ask you, Craig, about one of the other books you were involved in, which is The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump was uh, an interesting experience for me because I I'm actually have always been fairly conservative in the way I talk about political figures. I'm sure you've seen that in my other work. If, I, if anything, even over time, I've, I've probably been least vocal. And I was asked to write a chapter on narcissism because I've done, done a lot of work on narcissism, pathological narcissism, politics, leadership. And interestingly enough, probably not surprisingly, most leaders in politics, politicians, presidents score high enough on narcissism measures to be called narcissists. Narcissists are just high in the trade. It doesn't necessarily mean they're disordered. So we hope that some of those presidents and politicians aren't disordered. So I was approached to talk about Donald Trump. Um, There are some people who are coming straight out and and diagnosing 
Uh, I thought it was an inter interesting dilemma and an interesting project to take on because I'd already written a piece in 2015. And I think this is one of the reasons Bandy Lee, the editor, approached me um, called An Open Letter to U.S. Voters, mm -hmm. where I cautioned people that we already know that narcissists are drawn to these positions and we know that they feed on special attention and that's just part of their organization but to keep it healthy can we not applaud them for never apologizing you know that somehow it's weak mm -hmm. to say that you're wrong or that you're sorry for something because this actually just promotes unhealthy narcissism and tips tips people in the unhealthy range and now you're selecting for politicians who are like this so i'd already written that piece mm -hmm. and so it, i wrote a chapter called pathological narcissism in politics helping people to look at uh donald trump and the patterns we were seeing not to say he has narcissistic personality disorder but let's look at these things to determine if the pattern is there you you be the judge here's what it is that we're looking mm -hmm. for and that's really how I approached it in the chapter uh, by, by way of caution, that if you actually see these patterns and you don't pay attention to them and you get somebody in power in a position of president who has got narcissistic personality disorder, now, now you're going to see problems like the psychotic spiral, which we saw with Nixon. Nixon, who is a little bit more of a vulnerable narcissist. But we know that he was walking around drunk talking to painting, paintings, by the end of as, as Watergate approached. So he clearly went into a psychotic spiral. This is not a good thing. So I wanted to give people the tools to predict and see how this would happen. We had to struggle with the Goldwater rule. The Goldwater rule says that we're not allowed to diagnose or comment on people that we haven't been in the room with. This is so outdated and mm -hmm. so beside the point. At this point, there's a ton of research that shows clinicians are have pretty much 100% accuracy at diagnosing personality disorders on the basis of behaviors that are recorded and taped and historical information. And the Goldwater rule that bars us from talking about that stuff dates to a time where that, where we didn't have like hundreds and thousands of hours of videotape. Exactly. It is readily apparent, patently clear that not Donald Trump is a narcissist. And I think we have ample evidence that, it, that he tips into pathology. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you about the Goldwater rule and not being allowed to sort of third party diagnose or diagnose without actually physically seeing the person. And also, you know, those clinicians that have to make diagnoses, say for the court, um, where they have to be quite quick and robust diagnoses, I mean, they only see a little bit of that person. So they actually don't get yes. the full picture, do they? they they're going to do yes. a worse job of diagnosis yes. than... Those yes. of us who've looked at, you know, 50 hours yes. of footage of Donald Trump saying, I know better than almost anyone about wind or whatever it was that he yes. famously said. And they do, and, and they do, they do a pretty damn good job. Forensic psychology. This is one of the points that I made in interviews. I, I was interviewed by um, New England psychologists. They asked me about the Goldwater rule and my chapter in the book and how do I reconcile these? I was like, I have no problem reconciling this. This is, this is sort of a made up problem that tying people's hands in this way, the, 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 the bread and butter of forensic psychologists is diagnosing people with no, with little or exactly. no information. We already do exactly. this. Exactly. 
I mean, that's exactly it. And you get people on Twitter and on, mm. you know, all sorts of other forums saying you, it's wrong to diagnose someone that you have. You know, or, or I mean, perhaps it is wrong to diagnose them to suggest that there are patterns um, that may be indicative of, no, you know, it's yeah. not wrong to do that. Yeah. And also, of course, in the in the case of the, the spouse, you've got a spouse of someone who's clearly demonstrating they've been married for 30 years. Suddenly the light bulb has gone off and they've gone and they've read about narcissism and they've gone, oh, my God, there's this, there's that, there's triangulation, mm. there's manipulation, there's gaslighting. You know, they've gone down the list There's the cycle of idealization and devaluation. They've got the whole you know list and they've seen it all. Suddenly they've seen all these behaviors and suddenly they're piecing it together and they're remembering all these instances over the, the three decades or whatever that they've been with this person for and they you know no one in my opinion is in a better position to diagnose in inverted commas an artist than that right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I say this is a former GP a former a family doctor you know family doctors don't go around generally telling people to diagnose other people and they usually say look you know right. send them to the doctor but in this case in the case of these types of personality mm-hmm. disorder I think actually the best person the person best place to do it is probably the spouse if they've really read about it and they've got you know good robust information and they're not just getting it from you know angry kind of Facebook Cora. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, so yeah, and I think that's an important point. And that's kind of why yeah. I'm, I'm really pleased you brought up the Goldwater rule, because I think it naturally leads on to that point. There's nothing wrong with you as the spouse looking into it, getting some really good information about narcissism and forming your own view. In fact, you have to, because no one else is going to diagnose them more than likely. Yeah. No, knowledge is power. And, and knowledge that empowers is, is hugely important, particularly when it helps somebody who, as many people who are in these relationships uh, struggle with, blames themselves and sees themselves as the problem. And there is empowerment and recognizing the problem is outside of us. This is what people who are extremely narcissistic do reflexively, rigidly, and without thought many of us need to learn to do some of it because it's, it's healthy to not always think that we have influence or that what we say or do is causing problems and is somehow contributing to this bad behavior. Although it is possible as a victim of a narcissistic relationship to not be a nice person. Not all victims are nice people. And I think we need to make that point to all 100% nice. You know, is this hard? Yeah all good, all bad, oh, absolutely. black and white absolutely. thing. You know? We're all shades of Absolutely. Gray. No, absolutely. In the, case, in the case of mutual abuse, hugely important. Yeah, but then there's the bright line of you know, being, being provocative or being nasty doesn't justify someone hitting you or, or you know, mm-hmm. calling you worthless, right? So abuse is always 100% on the shoulders of the abuser regardless of what it is they respond to or think they're responding to. But that goes for mutual abuse as well. So when you say mutual abuse, with the whole um, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard thing, there was that kind of debate about mutual abuse, because that was the suggestion. But I think one of the psychologists or psychotherapists said, well, there's no such thing as mutual abuse, because by definition, abuse is about there being an imbalance of power. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that's utter nonsense. Abuse uh, can stem from an imbalance of power um, and can be perpetuated by an imbalance of power. 
But mm -hmm. if one person yeah. is hitting and the other person is hitting back, this is mutual abuse, right? right? The thing to do when, think, when something escalates to violence is to, is to leave, to get a safety plan, to call the police, any, any number of things, but to not, but to not hit back, yeah. right? In the most stark example, that's just mutual abuse. It doesn't matter if the other person has more power you're stepping into the abusive dynamic yourself. And of course that can apply to non-physical violence as well. Yeah, emotional, like you're a worthless piece of shit saying that to somebody who's narcissistic. Well, they might have narcissistic personality disorder and they might've been exploitative and unempathic towards you. And also if you call them a worthless piece of shit, you're yeah. being emotionally abusive. But I do think that that muddies the waters for some people because they think, well, I, I did that. I, I called my narcissistic ex a worthless piece of shit. Does that make me an abuser? Well, does it make you an abuser by personality or does it mean that you abused on that because you were at the end of your tether having had 20 years of it? Yeah, I, there's abusive dynamics. That, that is where people are being mm -hmm. mutually abusive. And then there's reactive abuse. It is abuse. But abuse mm -hmm. itself, mm -hmm. of course is a systematic, often conscious, not always, but often conscious, but a systematic use of control to maintain power in a relationship. That is not the same as reactive abuse. A person who lashes out, yes, it's abusive to say you're a worthless piece of shit and you're contributing to a dynamic of abuse, but you, you, know, that, you are not using abuse it is not, an, it, you are not becoming an abuser, which is about using power dynamics. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned, Craig, this idea of, you know, consciously abusing. And I always get asked this question, how conscious are narcissists generally that they are narcissistic, do you think? Oh, some are, some are very conscious. There's actually a clever measure called uh, cleverly titled with the acronym too called the sins the single item narcissism scale and all it is is you ask somebody uh, to what extent do you agree with the following statement i am a narcissist and you describe them that are yeah are they exploitative they're entitled they're empathy impaired they're egocentric yeah and uh extroverted narcissists will say oh, hell yeah yeah that's me because they valorize mm -hmm. the traits. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And that might even yes. include being yes. exploitative. And anybody, of course, who consciously celebrates exploiting others is likely going to be consciously manipulative. So there are consciously abusive, manipulative people. We know this because this is the dark tetrad personality, the constellation of traits of narcissism, which we've already described, psychopathy, mm -hmm. which is remorseless unempathic you know use of others um machiavellianism which is like a cold chess playing approach to life and relationships and sadism which is enjoying hurting others taking pleasure in other people's pain all of this is levels of manipulativeness but also these are people who tend you think about the term machiavellianism machiavellian trait people are very planful about the way they hurt and and the way they exploit and the way they abuse if they're if they're abusive so some people out there are going to be very conscious of what they're doing and then there are going to be others and these are often the people who who come to me for help 
and other clinicians, they're not likely to be the completely, you know, the person who's proud of their ability to control and manipulate and abuse, which, you know, obviously overlaps a lot with psychopathy too. The people who come to us for help, they're more often behaving unconsciously where they're trying to disown feelings of vulnerability, for example. They're not thinking, I'm going to make this person feel small so I don't have to. They're not thinking that at all. It's all reflex. Um, And that's much less intentional. But also, it doesn't matter if you're on the receiving end of that kind of abuse, whether it's conscious or unconscious, if the person isn't going to change it, you still have to protect yourself with the conscious ones even if they're conscious and they think oh yes i am a, a narcissist are they actually thinking i'm going to belittle you because i don't want to feel bad about myself are they that conscious or is it just i'm going to belittle you because i feel better about myself no i'm going to belittle you yeah just i'm going to belittle yes. you they don't get as far as because i feel no i don't think so no not at all that's why often it's also called like oblivious narcissism because they're even oblivious to their own defenses and and one of the strongest predictors of severe and dangerous pathological narcissism is denial Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right where the person can't even acknowledge their problems or own up to any anything being wrong at all and that kind of obliviousness no this is this is a person who's going to abuse it because it feels good they don't know they don't know why yeah exactly so they they know what they're doing but they don't know yeah. why they're doing it. Right. So yes. where they're conscious, it's more that they know what they're doing and it makes them feel a certain way to behave in that way, but they don't actually know why they're doing it. Yes. They don't know mm. what they don't know what mm. drives it, not really. It just feels like it, it just feels invigorating yeah. and empowering and better. But but also they don't need to know why, do they, from their perspective? They it's don't. not relevant. It doesn't matter mm. to them and it doesn't interest yeah. them. Which is why they don't see it as a problem. Which is why they very often don't seek help for it. That's yeah. right. Because yeah. it's not something they wish to be cured of, because actually it allows them to annoy to people. Yeah. Yes. They celebrate it. Yeah. I'm exactly. an alpha male. Exactly. There are all these euphemisms for it, like alpha males. <laughs> it's just a question about the, the communal narcissist. I mean, as I was saying, we tend to use the Masterson classification. Yes, yes, which is great. I, I grew up with that. I grew up with Masterson. There's some overlap um, with closet. Is that what you're referring to? Well, yes. No, it's very interesting because I, I, so I had a client today, actually, and, I, and, and she told me that she'd read our book. We actually lay out the four different types. We also have the communal narcissist in there. Oh. And um, so we have the exhibitionist, the devaluing, some people call that the malignant, the closet narcissist, and then the communal narcissist. And she said she read through the first three and she was like, oh gosh, you know, I, maybe I'm the narcissist because my spouse doesn't fit into any of these categories. She was about to sort of toss the book to one side and go and sort of be terribly depressed. Um, but she carried on reading and it ticked every box, she said, the communal narcissist. So it's very interesting that you don't actually often hear about that. I mean, maybe it is a subtype, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? So... Communal narcissism is a relatively recent construct that we've been working with that's captured in a measure called communal narcissism that measures the trait like all of these traits. And it's people who agree with statements like, I'm the most helpful person I know, <laughs> and one, and one, which I, I love that example. And one day I'll be famous for my good deeds. 
Yeah, I'm going to change the world. Yeah, you, so you can hear the brand of narcissism, is it? These are not people who feel special by virtue of their looks or being misunderstood. They feel special by virtue of their altruism. They view themselves as especially helpful. Um, these are the people who trap you in corners of the room, regaling you with tales for hours of, of just how giving and caring they are until you're bored to death. People at the extreme. There is going to be more discreet categorization, I think, at the lower levels of these traits, where... For example, if you measure somebody who's high on communal narcissism, it correlates very poorly with extroverted narcissism or grandiose narcissism. They're, they're, they seem to be very distinct. I think this is misleading because the reality is as somebody is more and more driven to feel uh, special, exceptional, unique, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. If it becomes addictive, they're going to find lots of different ways to do it. Yeah. This is why, so this is why you see somebody who has severe narcissistic personality disorder, you know, one for one segment of time, they're the loud chest thumping braggart. And, you know, then suddenly you see them in collapse and they're misunderstood and they're vulnerable and everyone's attacking them and no one understands them. And now they're a covert narcissist or a vulnerable narcissist. Yes. Yeah. So the more severe the disorder, you're going to see more blending. I'm so pleased that you've said that. I am so, so pleased that you said that. Yeah. I think people tend to just think, because I like to separate them out because I want to show people the different facets almost. By far and away, most of the people that I, you know, I obviously talk to the spouses rather than the, the actual narcissists themselves, but they tend to describe really a blend very often. You know, um, he gave his kidney away to his best friend kind of thing, that kind of level of altruism, but yeah. also, um, you know, it was very devaluing. There yes. tends to be that blend. Yes. And then also, as you say, with the, with, the, with the covert narcissism, yeah, that can also be a feature, perhaps when they have a narcissistic collapse or just if it suits them more at that time in their lives to get supply they're all just means to to getting supply aren't they really absolutely that's that that is why there's a blend same thing that you see with people who are severely addicted to drugs um they dabble in lots of different drugs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the uh these categories are just different drugs mm -hmm. with slightly slightly different delivery slightly different effects but they're all means of feeling special or exceptional compared to other people and they can all be used by this person that's addicted to needing narcissistic supply, addicted to needing to feel special. So they're all kind of drugs that they can use at these different types. Yes, absolutely. I'm really pleased that you've said that because I think people don't say that. People, It's not well understood. And I think it's it's really important that it, sh that it should be well, well understood. And that's hugely important because otherwise people get really confused and kind of lost in, in what they're seeing. And they run into problems like the person that you're describing, like, just, you know, well, none of this fits. So maybe this isn't the case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that he just happened to be very specifically a communal narcissist, but probably down the line may, may exhibit the other types of narcissism as well, the other categories as well at some point. Craig, it's been so brilliant um, speaking to you. And as you know, I, I tried to contact you a while back and I, you, uh, you were too busy at that time, uh, probably about a year ago. So I'm so delighted that we've finally managed to pin you down uh, to have this conversation. Me it's too. Been absolutely brilliant. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad we connected.
my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.